really tell you with any certainty how the Lord led me for this uh, rotation, for this uh, 13 weeks, uh, Lord willing. But the, uh, the messages, the series, if you will, are going to be topical or these series is topical. Uh, topical is, as I understand it, looking way back to uh, the days in seminary, um, topical is, is preaching on a particular topic or subject, preaching from the scriptures, of course, and being guided by the word of God, of course, and I think that they have a bad name. The idea of topical preaching or topical messages has received, and justly so in many cases, a bad name because so many in the past in the church have, have uh, picked a subject and they have selected a verse perhaps from the Word of God to hang their hat on, as, as our homiletics professor used to say. And then they get up and they talk about some subject, uh, pretending that it has something to do with the verse they've selected. But true topical preaching is, is taking a subject that is taught in the Word of God, taking a topic and preaching. But it differs from expository preaching because expository preaching is preaching through a a uh, portion of a book of the Bible, or uh, as Chuck has done with the Sermon on the Mount, or preaching through an entire book, as Mark is doing through Hosea, and as we, all of us, each of us, primarily do. But I felt led, as I've already admitted, I don't really know exactly how it evolved, but I felt led to uh, preach on a, on a subject these 13 weeks, and the subject that came to my heart and to my mind is the subject, the fear of God. And so I would like to ask you, with that being said, if you would turn to the book of Job, I'm going to read three different verses from the first chapter of the book of Job, beginning with the, uh, the first verse and then the eighth, and then the third verse of the second chapter. We read in these verses, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and turned away from evil. In the eighth verse, we read these words, And Jehovah said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? For there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and turneth away from evil. And then the third verse in the third, in the second chapter, in the third verse of that chapter, and Jehovah said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? For there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and turneth away from evil. 
and he still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we confess unto thee that which thou already know right well, that we are absolutely dependent upon thy help. We are absolutely dependent upon God the Holy Spirit indwelling to grant us utterance. And we do pray for that help. And we do thank thee for that help. We do thank thee for the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And we thank thee, O Lord our God, that thou hast not left us to ourselves. And that we know that, that we know that we can do nothing apart from the strength of Christ and the gift of his spirit to us. And so our Father, we pray. We thank thee that it has already been prayed more than once. We pray, O Lord our God, that thou would grant thy help. Father, to this one who is nothing in himself, but surprisingly thou hast called him to preach, and so we will do by thy grace. And we pray for thy glory, depending upon thy help. And we ask all these things for the exaltation, the lifting up of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying in his name. Amen. The fear of God. Where did the fear of God originate? Where did it come from? If you check a concordance, your Strong's or your Young's concordance, and even better, go to Bible Gateway if you can, because there you have the opportunity of not only looking up the word fear, but you can look up expressions such as the fear of God. Or if you use the ASV 1901, the fear of Jehovah. You can look up afraid. You can look up fearful. You can look up fearfulness. It's a wonderful tool that the Lord has provided for his students, those who would love to and do love to search the scriptures. But there are many, many passages in scripture dealing with the fear of God, but where did that fear come from? And as I've said, where did it originate? Did man always stand in the fear of God? What happened at the fall? What do we read of Adam and Eve after they had sinfully rebelled against their creator? Listen to the words of Adam when God found him, as it were, hiding and called unto him. Listen to Adam's response. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I believe this is the first expression in the scriptures of any fear of God. I was afraid. I heard thy voice. Since Adam's breach of communion with God, man has ever stood in need of an advocate. In the beginning, no sin separated Adam from God. 
He was created upright, as the scriptures tell us. And he had sweet communion with him in the garden. Now, it's not the communion that we think of today so much, although it must have been marvelous. But it isn't that same communion, remembering the, the broken body and the shed blood and so on, because sin had not come into the world yet. But Adam had this communion with God. And as we've already indicated, Job was called a God-fearing man. And to go back to that issue of God-fearing, Job being one that feared God and turned away from evil, you may be old enough to have heard somebody use that expression, a God-fearing man. It used to be, in my youth, much more common than it is today. I don't know that I hear it at all anymore, unless these passages are read that we've just read. But it used to denominate somebody that was actually striving to live under Christ, somebody that actually was concerned about how they lived unto God. And Job here, as we've read those three passages, was a God-fearing man. And I believe that it's very possible, even probable, that the Holy Spirit himself put those passages, why three of them that are practically identical with one another? I believe it's because of the importance of this doctrine, if you will, this teaching, this matter of the fear of God, fearing God. I believe that we have it here three times for that reason. God does not count it a small thing, a trite matter. Nor does he count it a small matter that someone like Job, that he could point to him and say, you see this man, he fears God. And he challenges Satan to do his best or to do his worst. And he sets Job before him as an example of one with integrity, one that fears God. But again, the origin of that fear of God that Job had, the origin of that came after Adam and Eve had sinned that brought Adam to say, I was afraid. You will notice that he said he was afraid, but he did not repent of his sin. He did not repent of his rebellion against God's command not to eat of the tree. He said he was afraid because he was naked. He said he was afraid because he heard his voice or he heard him walking in the garden. But he didn't repent of that sin. We read in that account in Genesis of the sin that led to this. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And she gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together 
and made themselves aprons, and they heard the voice of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah God among the trees of the garden. And Jehovah God called unto the man and said unto him, Where art thou? Now, of course, he knew where he was. But he called unto him. Does that make you think of anything? In your own experience, did God ever call you to come to himself through Jesus Christ and through the shed blood of his son? Did he not know where you were? But he called, didn't he? Here we see this, perhaps this first occasion. Jehovah called unto the man, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, that is Jehovah God, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And of course he knew that he had. He's asking these rhetorical questions. He's challenging Adam to repent. But Adam didn't repent. But he was afraid. Have you ever considered the state of man with God before sin, before that rebellion? Have you ever dwelt much upon it and thought about it? We see the approach of God giving to Adam the right and responsibility of naming every creature. He's investing him with this right and he's laying upon him this responsibility he joyfully gives to this man that he has created, these privileges. There must have been some sweet communion. God must have been in the practice. Jehovah God must have commonly walked in the garden in the cool of the day, each day. Can you imagine the blessedness, the privilege of Adam and Eve in that fellowship, however long or short it was, whatever it involved precisely. But can you imagine that? We read at the end of Genesis 1 that God saw what he had created and declared that it was all very good. Adam and Eve were all very good. In Ecclesiastes, we read that God made man upright, but he sought out many inventions or devices. But God made him upright. So here we have upright, good man and woman in the garden with God, communing with him, fellowshipping with him. What a marvel that is. I ask again, have you ever reflected on that and how glorious it must have been, how remarkable, how grand it must have been? In Genesis 2, we read of these, this fellowship, this relationship, this activity. We read at verse Eight, after God had formed man, we read in verse 8 of chapter 2, And Jehovah God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made Jehovah God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. I'm concerned about pleasing your eyesight. 
every tree that is pleasant to the sight. What a what a astounding, what a remarkable situation that Adam and Eve was in. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became four heads. And then further down in verse 15, And Jehovah God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He gave him a, a, a job. He gave him work to do. Pleasurable work. Working for, for his creator. Working for the Lord God of heaven. What a joyful situation that must have been. We can't even imagine it. Well, we can imagine, but not very well. We can only grasp at ideas and things. And then in 18, And Jehovah God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. He provided him a wife. He's seen to all his needs. It couldn't be any better. We know now that it can be better, but from this perspective, God provided everything, and it was wonderful and glorious and grand. Imagine, imagine them walking together in sweet communion. Whatever that amounted to in those circumstances, Walking together in sweet. We, we see this only in, in something of a shadow later with Enoch walking with God. With Noah walking with God. And what champions of the faith are each of them? One being carried up to heaven. The other being carried through a flood. And they walked with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, in all this beauty, in all this wonder, in all this glory. And then they fell. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. How they could turn their backs on that, as it were. Not as it were. How they could turn their backs on it most definitely. Thus, this fear that Adam expressed. Fear entered with sin. The fear of God. In spite of the wonder of Eden. And the wonder of God walking with him. Walking with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walking with him. The wonder of these things. Unspeakable. Unspeakable. It shows, it shows the horror of the fall. It points to us, points out to us the incredible, there aren't words to describe it. Heinous is one of the most popular, but it just shows us the horror, the horrific nature of rebelling against Jehovah God, our Creator. And yet they did. And yet they did. And they lost that communion. They lost the God-man walking with them in the garden. Who is this, in fact, communicating with Adam and his wife? Who was it that was such a familiar figure walking regularly 
in the garden in the cool of the day. We're told that it's, it was Jehovah God. And this is the one that Adam rebelled against. This is the one who this sweet walking was given up because he felt he had to have that fruit that was forbidden. Men are the same today, are they not? All you have to do is tell us men, I mean mankind, that's forbidden, you can't have that, don't touch that. And that's what mankind wants more than anything else. But look at what Adam gave up and what it brought him to in all mankind. Calvin has said of Adam's response that he imputes his fear to the voice of God. He's looking for some kind of mitigation for his wickedness. And he imputes his fear to his own nakedness as if he had never heard God before speaking without being alarmed and had not been even sweetly exhilarated, Calvin says, sweetly exhilarated by the speech of God to him. Yet he threw that all away. The voice of the word of the Lord God, some render it, walking the voice of the word, capital W, the word of the Lord God, some understand of this language, which they had heard before and knew, though perhaps now in another tone, saying, where art thou? Which before may have been milder and gentler, sweet communion was broken and now the voice is, where art thou? Somebody would understand a clap of thunder, which is sometimes called the voice of the Lord in that psalm that we sing somewhat often. Psalm 29, 3 through 5. Listen, the voice of Jehovah is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. Even Jehovah upon many waters. The voice of Jehovah is powerful. The voice of Jehovah is full of majesty. The voice of Jehovah breaketh the cedars. Yea, Jehovah breaketh in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon. The voice of Jehovah. The voice of the word of the Lord God. As I said. The word of God. Perhaps the pre-incarnate Logos. Perhaps as many writers believe, speaks to the man and the woman, says to the man and the woman, calls to the man and the woman, where are you? Where are you? He wanted to draw them back to himself, perhaps. That's likely, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus Christ does? Jesus himself said in John 1.18, and, and this is one of the scripture references for supposition, for the supposition that this is indeed the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus himself said, no man has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. And undoubtedly he was declaring him, the Father, in all that communion with Adam and Eve. Where art thou? In spite of their inexplicable rebellion, he calls after them. He seeks for them. Even as we read of Jesus in the Gospels, he came to seek and to save the lost. I'm avoiding saying with regard to Adam and Eve that he came to seek and save his own because we don't really know whether they were his own. But he came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus portrays himself, does he not, as, as going after that one lost sheep. Have you ever thought about that? He left the 90 and 9 and he went after the one lost sheep. He laid down his life for that one lost sheep. If that one sheep was the only one that had been placed in him from before the foundation of the world, he would have laid down his life for that one lost sheep. But he came to seek and to save that one lost sheep. He came to seek and to save the lost. He's the same, the same who in his time upon earth called unto the lost those that were hiding from him like Adam and Eve, hiding from him under whatever fig leaf they could manufacture, whatever excuse they could devise. He came calling, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the yoke that they had taken upon themselves? Was that a light yoke? I submit that the yoke of Satan is not a light yoke. The yoke, the burden of sin is not a light yoke. Jesus calls out to them, in the garden, where art thou? And the fear factor that we're talking about, the fear factor that came in because of sin, if I can use that language, it's only set aside. It can only be set aside by our great high priest and his satisfaction at Golgotha. He comes forward as our mediator with the book of life op opened. And after our names written, Paid in full. He co-signed, as it were, for us in the council of the Godhead in eternity past. And when we were found bankrupt and we recognized that we were bankrupt and we were convicted of our sinfulness, then we responded to his call, where art thou? And he even gave us the spirit of God and gave us new hearts and gave us the gift of faith to enable us to do that. Robert Canley, 19th century Scottish theologian, 
said their shame, therefore, and their fear proved that they really died, that having sinned, they in that very day came under the guilt and curse of sin, the guilt of sin causing shame, the curse of sin causing fear. Such is the instant knowledge of evil. And another writer, George Bush, not our George Bush, but another 18th century pastor and theologian said, through the terror inspired by conscious guilt, that presence which they had before welcomed, that presence of God which they had before welcomed with joy now fills them with dismay. They hide. They try to cover themselves and hide from that beautiful person. Their consciences set their sin before them in its blackest aspect, and as they had then no hope of a future mediator, there remained to their apprehension, to their apprehension, nothing but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation ready to devour them. Where art thou? I was afraid. Thus the fear of God entered into the world because of sin. This, of course, even as sin, even as it's true of sin, this fear proved to be exponential with the people of God, with all people in truth. But even with the people of God, and especially with the people of God, there are hundreds of examples in Scripture We'll only glance at a few in Genesis 28. You know the account. You know the account there in Genesis 28 and verse 17. You remember the vision, Jacob's vision at Bethel. But what was his reaction to that? When God told him, Jehovah stood above it and said, I am Jehovah, the God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. And so on. And he says, I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, Surely Jehovah is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid. And said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Now we're going to be seeing in the weeks to come the different sorts of being afraid, the different sorts of fear. That there's a fear that is taken to mean reverence. Reverence for God. But there's a, it, it's the same word. But the context requires frequently that it be rendered reverence or understood as a reverence. How dreadful is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Do we have that reverence when we come into the house of God knowing that it's in this sense the gate of heaven knowing that God has promised to meet us here to commune with us here by his spirit through his son. What a lovely example we were able to have by God's grace last week of that communion, that fellowship with our Savior. 
But then in Exodus 3, 6, that account of Moses seeing that burning bush and being called over to it. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. He was afraid. And God had told him, Jehovah had told him, take off the shoes from off your feet for the ground upon which thou standest is holy ground. And that reverence, that fear, that godly fear was required. And of course that passage in Isaiah 6, that that Isaiah the prophet saw, the cherubim, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And what was his response? What was his cry? Woe is me. Yes, the word fear or afraid is not here, but listen, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King Jehovah of hosts. I believe it's very likely Adam and Eve were fellowshipping with the King and they threw it away. They threw it away. Job speaks in Job 13, 11, and then in 23, 15, these words, Shall not his majesty make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? And then he says, Therefore am I terrified at his presence when I consider I am afraid of him. Do we consider? Do we consider? I believe that we have been being drawn to consider God and the marvel of his grace and consider the marvel of his person and consider the blessedness and the amazement of being in Christ. Do we consider it? Do we reflect upon it? Ought not these sounds of warning, these sounds of warning regarding the fear of God in this, in this passage in Isaiah 33 that I'm going to speak of, ought not these sounds of warning apply to many in our day, to unregenerate especially? Isaiah speaks of sinners in Zion. We have sinners in Greenville. We have sinners in South Carolina. We have sinners everywhere. But I'm talking here about those that have not bowed the knee to Christ. And should this warning not bring them to fear God? Listen to what Isaiah says here. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless ones. Who among us can dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? The answer is very gracious. The answer that's given to that in Isaiah 33 is is a very gracious answer. Isaiah 33. At verse 14 and 15. I just read 14. The sinners in Zion. But listen to the answer. Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who among us can dwell with a devouring fire? He that walketh righteously... And speaketh up, sounds like Job, doesn't it? Sounds like the description of one that fears God. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh 
his hands from taking in a bribe, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from looking upon evil. He shall dwell on high, and so on. That's the answer to that. The man that fears God, I would say. And you remember those that we read of in Revelation 6, 14 through 17? You remember those? Those the kings and rulers of the earth that cried out for the rocks and the mountains and the hills to be brought down upon them and to hide them from who? To hide them from the face of the Lamb. To hide them from the face of the Lamb. And here, Adam and Eve, had, they were walking with the, the one who has the face of the Lamb. And they gave it all away. They gave it all up. By God's grace, of course, and because of Christ's love, the love of the triune God, we have been given the opportunity of returning, of answering that call, where art thou? Here, my Lord. We have been given the faith to do that, the new heart to do that. Sinners ought to be afraid as were our first parents afraid. Even as Habakkuk was afraid at the report he heard when he said, I heard the report of thee, Jehovah, and I'm afraid. And this is similar, it struck me, to that Rahab's declaration to those two spies as she was hiding them. She told them about the people of Jericho. They've heard about your God. They've heard what he did to those kings, Og and Bashan and so on and how that he is with you, and he is your God, and he's bringing you here. And the hearts of the people here in Jericho melted for fear. And that's how sinners ought to be afraid, ought to recognize the fear of God. Do you not praise God that he brought you to flee from the wrath to come. To fear God. To fear displeasing Him. To fear turning your back on Him. Was it not the pre-incarnate Word of God walking in the garden? Do we respond that, that well, Jesus is that meek and lowly one. He's not like that God in the Old Testament. How many respond that way? And yet we see in the Gospels how that Jesus brought about fear. He brought about fear. I'm not going to go to these passages for the sake of time, but you remember when he healed the demoniac. The multitudes around saw what had happened. The demoniac, the one who was mad, insane, possessed of demons, sitting in his right mind, and they were afraid. In other cases of healing and so on. And think about Pontius Pilate when he was confronted by the Lord of glory. He was afraid. Here this governor of Rome, the greatest nation ever to that time, and he was afraid. Jesus Christ brings out fear. He is God. He is Jehovah God. 
the same God that we read of in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is Jehovah. He is God. But think as we reflect upon fearing Christ, does that seem odd to you to think in terms of fearing Christ? Well, listen to Paul's language in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, and in particular the end of that. You remember that that's about singing one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so on. And being drunk with the Holy Spirit, as it were, and so on. It's talking about the body of Jesus Christ. And he says at the conclusion of that passage, subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Do you not? Do we not fear displeasing Christ? Do we not fear? It was mentioned this morning about Saul on the road to Damascus and how he was accosted by that great light and the words of our Savior. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this was the head of the body. This was the head of the church asking him this. And if we don't do right to our brothers and sisters, if we don't do right to the one another's in the fear of Christ, and that's why one of the motives given to please Jesus Christ, we subject ourselves one to another. We are concerned about one another because we fear Christ. We fear displeasing Christ. Paul wrote to the the church in Corinth these words in 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men. He's speaking of the gospel in the context. Knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men. A.T. Robertson wrote many today regard this that is the fear of the Lord. Many today regard this fear of the Lord as a played out motive. A played out motive. But not so Paul, he says. He has in mind verse 10 that precedes that with the picture of the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And with that in mind, he says... Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Let us pray. O Lord our God, our Father in heaven, may we know what it is as we are reminded in that second psalm. May we know what it is to kiss the Son, lest he be angry and we perish from the way. May we know what it is to tremble before him, to love and to tremble. Help us, O Lord our God, we ask, to learn this, to rejoice in it as we rejoice in him, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction?
Psalm 27, verse 1. Jehovah is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Jehovah is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Amen. Checked up here and everything. Well, it's lit. Probably something like this. Should have recorded because you have two bars. You were on, um, you were on.